story on the face of the planet is a man-made catastrophe. We need to sound the alarm. This is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for. And we're here to say to all of you, on behalf of the House of Representatives and the Congress of the United States, we're still in it. We're still in it. It seems like that connection to how people actually experience and understand climate change is often missing. And then we go, why don't more people care about climate change? Why would they? We are facing a climate crisis. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But unfortunately, it's something we've got to grapple with. So how? How do we reach the science-based target of net zero emissions by 2050? In this episode, we ask physicist, professor, Nobel laureate, and former energy secretary, Stephen Chu, do we have all the technology tools we need to win the climate fight? Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am Julia Piper, your host, contributing editor with Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. And this is episode two in our Path to Zero series, created with support from Third Way. Third Way is a think tank based in Washington, D.C. that champions modern, pragmatic federal policies. Third Way's climate and energy program focuses on thoughtful and data-driven climate solutions that put the U.S. on the fastest and fairest path to net zero emissions by 2050. Over the course of this monthly Path to Zero series, we'll explore how to decarbonize the power sector, transportation, and industry. And we'll discuss how policymakers, labor groups, disadvantaged communities, and others can all engage in this quest to cut down carbon emissions. In episode one, we spoke to Third Way's Josh Freed about why reaching net zero emissions by 2050 is such an important target. We also heard about the climate science that's creating urgency around reaching this goal from scientist and climate strategist Dr. Jane Long. In this episode, we ask, what are the technologies we need to get us to net zero? To answer this question, Political Climate reached out to an expert with a front row seat to the evolving clean tech landscape. Stephen Chu served as the U.S. Secretary of Energy under President Obama from January 2009 through April 2013. Under his leadership, the DOE launched several new initiatives to help put the U.S. at the forefront of clean tech development. That includes creating energy innovation hubs and the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, or RPE. Chu also oversaw $90 billion in Recovery Act funding for strategic clean energy investments. Altogether, these measures helped jumpstart America's modern green economy. But what now? We still have a long way to go. So what do we need to reach net zero? Speaking to Stephen Chu is a familiar task for one of the members of our team. Political Climate's Democratic co-host Brandon Hurlbut previously served as Chu's chief of staff at the DOE. 
He is now a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. And for this interview, Brandon joined Secretary Chu on campus at Stanford University, where Chu continues to teach and conduct research after a long and distinguished career that includes winning the 1997 Nobel Prize for Physics. Our Republican co-host, Shane Skelton, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan, was also on the line. Here is how that conversation started. Secretary, thanks so much for your time. You're quite welcome. And I won't ask you how Paul Ryan feels about what's going on in Congress now. It seems that we've entered a new universe. (laughs) (laughs) It is. You know, I don't even think he'd recognize it, honestly. I know I wouldn't, which, you know, it hasn't been that long, which is strange. Yeah. And every day it goes into a different universe. I mean, he did so much to stand up for the Constitution while he had the power to do it. I'm just baffled by it. Look at Brandon. I'll tell you, though, you guys, I mean, when you guys were in office, those were the Boehner days. I mean, that Congress isn't even recognizable. It's really nuts how fast things have changed. Secretary, I wanted to ask you quick before we go any further, you know, what we should really call you, because I think we could also say doctor, professor, Nobel Prize laureate. Do you have a preference here that we should use? Steve works. (laughs) (laughs) If that's too, if that's too informal, professor, but uh, no, no more secretary. I think, I think that's mostly for the former (laughs) ex-politicians. They love to remind people. It's the highest title they've ever held. You always use the highest title, right, (laughs) for them. Well, I may still call you secretary because that's the most familiar term to me. And and I saw you work on many things as the secretary of energy. I have to ask you, were you ever the point person for Ukrainian foreign policy? (laughs) No, uh, mercifully not. (laughs) Um. Well, good good thing we cleared that up. <laughs> All right. And we we And neither neither did I have any board duties on any companies. <laughs> Nor were we subpoenaed for an impeachment proceeding. <laughs> like the former Secretary Perry was. Uh uh Secretary, were there any stories about Brandon that we should know before we go any further and dig into the serious stuff? Um, it's only all for drinks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll save that one. I want to start with kind of a big scene-setting question here because we're really focusing on the path to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And this came up in a big landmark UN report. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a stunning report last year that estimated global emissions from greenhouse gases needed to drop by roughly 45% from 2010 levels by 2030 and reach net zero emissions by 2050 if we're going to limit warming to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. So I'm curious, what is your assessment of the state of climate science today? Are you concerned that 2030 could be this tipping point? And that is where we could maybe no longer stave off the catastrophic effects of climate change. So as a scientist, how does this comport with what you're reading and seeing and hearing? I I would agree that if you wanted to stay below 1.5 degrees, you would have to do something along those guidelines, uh, namely by 2050, essentially net zero emissions. If you look at all the IPCC scenarios, uh, you actually have to go into negative emissions in the coming decades. So, so I would agree with that assessment, but sadly, I would also agree that th- that assessment means we are likely to go over 1.5 or even 2 
or two and a half degrees centigrade. Many people don't like to talk about that because talking about going over one and a half or two degrees is admitting defeat. Um, and so I understand that. But on the flip side of that, the reality is the probability of staying below one and a half or even two degrees looks to me to be very slim. So when people ask, does that mean it's too late? Do you give up hope? Well, um, uh, I'm reminded of something my thesis advisor told me when I was a graduate student. He says, it's never too late until you're dead. And uh, put it in another way, if you say, it's too late, I give up hope, you're just abandoning all responsibility for uh, what's going to happen in the future. So we're obligated not to say it's, quote, too late, but realistically, we're heading in a very bad place. So each decade, it gets harder and harder, or the probability of going higher and higher temperatures are increasing. And that's very sobering. I'm very concerned about this. What's the difference between 1.5 degree and 2.5 or 3? 1.5 degrees is something that we think might be manageable. Now, let's calibrate. This is 1.5 degrees since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, but it's only been in the last 75 years that things have really warmed up, and we've gone up roughly a 1 degree centigrade average in the last 75 years. But already uh, we see very surprising speed in which the climate is changing. And by that, I mean, if you average over the last couple of decades, I'm actually very surprised that these predictions that I thought I would not see in my lifetime, like the increased storms, the increased variability of weather, the melting of Antarctica, which 20 years ago was predicted, it was probably going to increase in ice mass. All these things have been accelerating. And a continent on fire. Uh, several continents <laughs> on fire. Currently, Australia, and as I was uh, driving uh, to this podcast, uh, I was listening to broadcasts in NPR about what the Australians are saying about it, and the firefighters are saying, well, we're only trying to control it, and until it starts raining, the fires won't be put out. So, so we, we're seeing this, the fires. We're seeing water shortages. So that's at one degree. What does two or three look like? Uh, we're in a very bad place. So, Secretary, we're talking about the need to reach net zero emissions by 2050 and maybe even go negative. With today's technologies, do we have enough there to get to that goal? Or do we need a lot more innovation, a lot more new technology to actually reduce emissions to the levels that we need to? The short answer is we need a lot of innovation. We need more technology. And the reason is because the world today is not yet prepared to double energy prices. Uh, they're simply not going to go there. Even if they're convinced 50 years down the road we're looking at really bad, bad things, most of the people around the world, and including much of America, says, no, we don't want to double energy prices. So, given that, uh, there's also something, I, when I was Secretary of Energy, I quoted a Sheikh Imani many, many times in speeches, and he said reputedly that the Stone Age did not come to an end for lack of stones, and the Oil Age will not come to an end for lack of oil. So what did he really mean by that? He meant 
that when you transition from the Stone Age to a new age, metal ages, you actually find new technologies. And when you have these new, better technologies, like copper or bronze, all of a sudden you look at the stones on the ground and you say, you just go into something better. Now, what that means is you have to go into energy sources that are both cleaner, better, uh, but also competitive economically. And the good news is uh, lots of renewable energy, notably solar and wind, are becoming very inexpensive, especially in good places. And uh, it's widely thought, even by people in the oil companies, that in 20 or 30 years, 20 years, by 2030, certainly by 2040, electricity made for solar and wind could be wholesale prices, maybe one and a half cents a kilowatt hour. That's the good news. The bad news is, in order to go over 50% renewable, you not only need these things that are generate power when the sun is shining, the wind is blowing, but you actually need uh, energy storage, you need an enhanced transmission and distribution system, and ultimately you need some backup generation capability. And that means you need something like either fossil with carbon capture or nuclear or something that you can flip on, especially in parts of the world where you have big seasonal changes like in the northern Europe. So uh, the good news is that energy storage is getting cheaper, but it's not getting there fast enough for any probability of being staying below one and a half degrees unless the world wakes up and says, no, we're willing to double energy prices. But solar is at two cents a kilowatt hour now. Solar is great. Uh, it is at two cents a kilowatt hour in uh, the Middle East. That includes profit. And Los Angeles. Yes, that's right. And that's great. But solar is on in Los Angeles maybe on average seasonally 30% of the time. And so what do you do the other 70% of the time? And so that's what I mean. You need much better energy storage mechanisms. If you look at the cost of batteries today, as opposed to where they were 10 years ago, for automobile batteries, it's dropped by almost a factor of 10. This is great. It's just like what solar did. Actually, solar dropped by tenfold repeatedly <laughs> <laughs> over many years. But that means that it's still, within this decade, I predict maybe $100 per kilowatt hour. In, in, this is the you know, the package at utility scale. Mm -hmm. um, right now, if you look at, let's say, example, Tesla's cost for their batteries, it's something uh, roughly speaking about $200 a kilowatt hour. Utility scale could be lower by factor two. Okay, what does it have to be for a week storage, a month storage? Well, if you store overnight, that's one thing. If you use the battery once every 10 days, guess what? The capital cost of the battery has to be reduced significantly <laughs> in order to, to, because you're only using it once every 10 days. Once every month, it gets even worse. Seasonal, it gets even worse. And so this is the problem. Uh, we will, within a decade in the U.S., probably get to peak load shifting, even day-night storage. But uh, the seasonal storage is harder. And then if I look at other places, Japan or, or Northern Europe, it's much worse. Mm -hmm. So, so, so um, we do need a breakthrough in long-term energy storage. It looks very far away, but I'm actually hopeful. 
So so what I'm hearing is energy storage is critical if we want to decarbonize the electricity sector and, you know, use these intermittent resources like solar and wind. Those costs are coming down, as Brandon pointed out. But it sounds like you're seeing we need to bring down energy storage much more to be successful there. Yes. And just for our listeners, I should know that we're talking about the energy sector here primarily decarbonizing the entire economy goes even further into food systems, et cetera. But to sort of bracket our discussion, let's keep it focused on on energy. And so I guess, Shane, I want to go to you because I know you had a question about what this will look like in 2050. Yeah. So, Secretary, I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, that we've gone from peak oil to peak oil demand. I think, you know, for people of, of my generation, that was unthinkable, you know, when we were sort of entering the energy space and and has been nuts now. So any any transition has to be made by choice. And I guess my question to you is based on some of the high tech uh, solutions, including, you know, denser long term storage and the low tech solutions. What in your mind, if you were, you know, God for a day is the best possible energy mix for year 2050? And based on all the things that you know, and some of the things that you've just articulated, what do you think is the most likely outcome for at least the US electric sector in 2050? Great question. Uh, I think it's going to be a mixture of wind, solar, and hydro, where uh, to maximize hydro where uh, where we have it. Then you have the other forms of chemical energy storage, uh, and that's what I see as as what the mix will be. I think we shouldn't hold our breath for anything radically new like fusion. And um, and there are too many local areas within the United States that are just fundamentally against fusion, plus the fact that fu- fission rather, plus the fact that fission is um, um, we don't know how to ma- build nuclear power plants on budget on time, and so that it's it's not going to work for that reason alone. So 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 I I think that this this mixture of those renewable resources. Uh, maybe a little geothermal, enhanced geothermal, but the, the rest of it is that. Let me also comment that it, we're not talking just about the so-called energy sector, where most people think of the energy as electricity. We're talking about all the energy we use to make stuff as well. And so that's, that's a significant part. Also, there's heating, space heating, uh, which we have not talked about. Um, and then there's transportation. Right now we... Ah, uh, transportation in the United States, it's a big deal. It's roughly a third of the energy. And as the rest of the world gets richer, uh, it too will be a higher fraction. And then finally, there's food. Right now, food production and land use and things like that are more greenhouse gas emissions than uh, electricity in the world. And so you mentioned what you saw for the future in 2050. Do you see small modular reactors as part of that? Is there, is there a type of nuclear that you see working? And second, what about carbon capture? Do you see fossil fuels playing a role at all? I I would hope that we can get small modular reactors, but but that means you need a hundred orders for a company to actually bite the bullet and start to invest. The thing about small modular reactors is you can be made on on a factory site under very controlled conditions and shipped everywhere around the world. And one hopes that if you make it under those conditions and they're all uniform standard reactors, that the approval process for each site would be drastically reduced. But it also requires something else, and that is 
the public has to be comfortable enough and the regulatory agencies have to be good enough to assure that there won't be an accident that could lead to contamination. And, and that means that if you have a lot of small modular reactors, you can't have the equivalent of a half a dozen nuclear regulatory agency people on a site. Because what I saw when I was Secretary of Energy, for every regulator on a site, there's about 100 people running around asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, when I was uh, director of National Lab, and when you've got DOE people on site, they're running around asking a lot of questions, and then you've got to answer all those questions but you, because, you know, those are the guys who pay your bills. And so... Um, and, and, you know, the bureaucracy will, above all, perpetuate itself. And so you cannot have, uh, with small modular reactors, uh, people on site. You have to have enough trust in the technology that, and it has to be regulated well enough, and you have to have infrastructure well enough so that you're not going to have accidents, contamination issues, uh, without having lots of regulators. Uh, and so that's, that's another hurdle. Uh, quickly on carbon capture, uh, because to me that's a big one, because basically what happens to these oil and gas majors? Do they go out of existence, as some you know activists I think would like to see, or can they transition into cleaner energy companies by using technologies like carbon capture? That seems like a big controversial question in my mind. Curious what you think on it. Well, I basically think that uh, by the Near the end of this century, in the last 25 years of the century, we should not be using oil and gas. Just to stay below two or two and a half degrees. Uh, I'm serious. And um, I'm an advisor to Royal Dutch Shell, and the people in Royal Dutch Shell recognize that, you know, in 50 years, uh, they better be out of the oil and gas business. Carbon capture is something that we will need. Not only we will need it for all the other things. Uh, jet planes in the near-term future, meaning next 50 years, I don't see as being totally electric battery operated. The, the, you know, the long distance um, highway capacity airplanes are probably gonna use hydrocarbon fuel. The hydrocarbon fuel will then have to come from clean sources, which means you'll have to make synthetic fuels based on clean power, uh, solar, wind, things like that, in order to make those. We still haven't figured out how to do that. That's another technology hurdle. If it's $300 a barrel oil, yes. <laughs> uh, but we don't expect the price, or I don't expect the price of oil long-term. And, you know, if there's a Middle East war, yes, the price will go up. <laughs> but long-term, the ability to find and extract oil and natural gas has also improved tremendously. The oil companies, the major oil companies, are predicting that peak oil consumption will come soon, by 2040, maybe 2050. But you still have to go to zero. So carbon capture is a necessary thing. But even beyond that, suppose we go to 550 parts per million, okay, uh, which I think is realistic. I mean, we're 410, right? We're, we're over 410. And the rate at which we're emitting carbon dioxide today means that in about 20 years, we're going to be over any, we're busting any one and a half, two degree barrier. Uh, and so, so what we will need would be carbon capture, not only from the point sources, all the process heat, all the you know, steel, cement, plastics, chemicals, 
all electricity generation. Um, but we're going to have to get it from the air too. Because there's a couple hundred years of melt time. As shocking as this may sound, uh, it's been seven years since you were the energy secretary. So now that you've had some time to reflect uh, with a little distance, what worked? What didn't work? What's happened since you were secretary that you were surprised about? Well, uh, a couple of things worked. Um, Amazingly, one of the things that worked best was the loan program. Hmm. The thing (laughs) that I was most criticized for, and why was that? Uh, It's because in 2009 to 2012 and 13, Wall Street didn't want to invest in large wind or solar farms. It, it's, it wasn't it's considered too risky to invest hundreds of millions to half a billion dollars in these big projects. But during those years, a lot, these very large projects were built on time on budget. And we never actually gave a loan unless there was a power purchase agreement that you would actually, there were an offtake agreement, a utility company would take this power at a certain rate. When the project comes on budget on time, then it's completely de-risked. And some of the solar farms, for example, that we invested in and guaranteed the loans were actually bought by pretty staid financial concerns like Berkshire Hathaway. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it was, well, you know, it's going to make 8% return. Uh, It's not great, but it's a safe bet after the project has been built and has been turned on. And so... From 2009 to 2014-15, all of a sudden Wall Street completely turned around and said, these are actually good investments. And it's easier to get, and the better, the the safer the investment looks, the cheaper the money gets. And so the irony is today, if you look at investments in oil and gas, they look riskier than a, uh, a wind or solar farm. But it needed that four years of boost to get the big projects to actually say, yes, it happens, it works. And so that was an amazing thing. A lot of, you know, the research, the things of that also are coming in. Uh, but it's a little hard to say if it's radical research because it's going to take decades. Mm-hmm. So there was really a lot of good stuff uh, going on. We, we did not solve the hydro, liquid hydrocarbon problem. It, it was hard. It still remains hard. Uh, we haven't solved uh, the energy storage was getting better and better. Uh, it's a mixture of industry plus EVs plus a lot of things. But the promotions of the EVs and and the feeling that these things were, could actually work was actually gave industry an incentive. So building off of what you're saying here about uh, the U.S. government's investment history, I wonder if that's even enough, right? It maybe was controversial at the time, but now we're seeing countries like China have big coordinated plans to become clean energy leaders. And so I'm wondering if the U.S. government, from your point of view, needs to become more comfortable with making these types of strategic investments in the clean energy economy and those types of solutions. What is your thought of that? Could the U.S. get left behind if it doesn't do that? I I agree. Um, uh, These are technologies that the world will absolutely need. Uh, whether it's obvious now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now, it's going to be really obvious that uh, the people who control these technologies, who are the leaders in these technologies, uh, be, will have the most prosperity. And, and uh, when I was Secretary of Energy, that's what I was saying. 
during that whole time that has not only not changed, it's become even more convinced that these are some crucial technologies where the prosperity of America, of the United States. If we, if we don't stimulate investments, both in the private sector and in, in public funds, uh, we're going to fall behind. Secretary, I want to sort of hit you with with the hardest thing that that we've given you all day. Um, I read The Onion, and I have to know, um, what is better in bed, a solar panel or a wind turbine? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can can do much more spooning with a solar panel. listeners reference there is actually an onion article about this uh, shane didn't just make that up just google hungover steve chew <laughs> oh my god you have a unique uh perspective on climate because you are a nobel prize winning scientist and you were a policymaker and federal political appointee at the highest level of government so is it possible that scientists underestimate how much impact policy can have on climate technology? And do policymakers then not factor in scientific opinion enough? And then there are these political barriers that neither side can figure out. So do you agree that that is the sort of circumstance we're living in? And if so, what do we do? We we need policy, for sure, uh, because it's policy that actually provides the stimulus for research at direct funds, but also the stimulus for private sector investments uh, that actually turn discovery and invention into something deployed at large scale. So you absolutely need policy. Every new nascent little industry needs a little boost in order to do something, uh, unless it's demonstrably so much better that you don't need this. But in terms of the energy sector, definitely, because of the inertia, Mm -hmm. because it takes 50 years to change the entire energy space, including agriculture. These things take a long time, and uh, and time is running out. Mm -hmm. Uh, We never had much time, but it's really (laughs) running out. So policy is absolutely essential for all those reasons. But policy also should especially try to stimulate the research that will give us new breakthroughs, because when there are new breakthroughs, the transition will be made much faster. The fastest transition I know about was the transition from horse and buggy to internal combustion engine cars. A couple of decades, if you think of all the infrastructure needed for that. But the but it was hastened by a pollution problem. It was a horse poop problem. <laughs> there were in major cities in around the world, uh, millions of pounds of horse manure per day were piling up. Mm-hmm. And so along comes a poopless carriage. And it was great. <laughs> uh, and so you can immediately see with poopless carriages that, you know, the streets are cleaner. The mm-hmm. air s- smells better. It's, it's just good, okay? Mm-hmm. The trouble with carbon dioxide and other methane and other greenhouse gases is uh, it's odorless. Uh, the, the delay invisible. time, invisible. The delay time is 50 plus years of what's really going to happen. And so it's a different problem. But it's got to be accelerated. And, and There's a shot clock here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My, 
as as um, uh, Mirsa Tome said in uh, My Cousin Vinny, my biological clock is ticking. <laughs> <laughs> Our planetary clock is ticking. Um, yes, all these clocks are ticking. And so we, we need this faster. You know, we don't want to wait 20 years. Yeah. Um, the good news is a lot of smart people are beginning to focus on these issues. That's And when mm-hmm. you have lots of smart people beginning to focus on this, the breakthroughs will come faster, mm-hmm. but you still need to create a market, and the policy creates that market. So I think there's lots more to explore there on the market question and even the human question, which we'll, we'll get into more over the course of this series of how do we transition to cleaner technologies? What are the business models? And then how are people affected by that transition? What does the future of work look like? How do we make sure we build in equity? All kinds of big questions like that that go beyond this scope of this interview, but I think we teed it up quite nicely. Now though, we wanna put to you a round of fun rapid fire questions. So first one is, favorite national lab? Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. All right. Better pyramid scheme, social security or world economy? Worst pyramid scheme is (laughs) prosperity is based on increased population rise. All right. What was your favorite perk about being secretary? (laughs) 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 This is a tough one. (laughs) Working with Brandon Hurlbut, perhaps? No. Besides working with Brandon and before that Rod, I would say not having to go through airport security. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Favorite thing to eat or drink on Air Force One? Oh, it's no different. It's still a martini. (laughs) (laughs) We had a few. Well, that kills our favorite cocktail question. (laughs) (laughs) Who's a better golfer, you or President Obama? I plead the fifth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> favorite celebrity you met as secretary of energy favorite celebrity that i met as secretary or of afterwards no i'm just thinking no would you just you know um i i would have to say that it wasn't it wasn't leonardo DiCaprio. who's who's the brad pitt brad among the women in the office <laughs> their favorite was brad pitt <laughs> but for me, it might have been Kate Blanchett. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've asked you enough hard-hitting questions for one day. I think we'll leave it there, unless anyone has one last one they want to want to put it out there. I, I actually, I, I have a, if, if you don't mind, I want to have a comment on something. Um, Please. Uh, two nights ago, I binged watch and watched uh, the miniseries Chernobyl, mm. which just got the uh, Golden Globe Award mm-hmm. for the best miniseries. And I was thinking, man, you know, fear of nuclear, you can see how real it was and how it can be communicated and all the, you know, these horrible deaths and everything and uh, due to radiation. What do we have to do? And that really hits people in a very different place. And also there's heroes in in that, in in that miniseries. There's amazing people, hundreds, thousands of people who willingly gave their lives for the greater good. What can we do in terms of what could happen in in this climate emergency we are now in? And how do you actually get people to react emotionally in a very, very deep, sustained way uh, to actually, also to actually become heroic? 
Um, and instead of where we are now, which is complacent, I don't want to believe that these bad things that, you know, I'm still clinging the possibility might not happen. Uh, we need we need more of that to actually get people to realize that this is the big moral question that we are facing today. Human beings have never had to face the question that what we do today will affect people 50, 100, 200, 300 years from now. And it might be in a very, very harmful way. And, and don't we have a responsibility to do something about that? Do you think that's why Greta Thunberg has become so popular? Because here's a, a 16-year-old girl speaking truth to power? She's not sugarcoating? She's not, and, but she's mostly saying, look, listen to the scientists. You know, take them seriously. Mm-hmm. But it it needs it needs it need, we need something we need a whole bunch of miniseries <laughs> <laughs> to communicate that. <laughs> Julia, you can produce it. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Well, Secretary, we really appreciate you coming on the show to help us grapple with what the path to zero looks like. Sure, you're quite welcome. We're gonna go have a few of those martinis now. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy that. Have one for me. All right. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for episode two in The Path to Zero. This series is produced with support from Third Way and will continue to be published monthly on the Political Climate feed. You can subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You can send feedback to us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. And please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. (laughs) 